Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Daily Zen Podcast. My name is Charlie Ambler, uh, creator of the Daily Zen. You probably found this podcast on Twitter. Um, Twitter.com slash Daily Zen uh, is the project from which it arose out of. But if you found it on iTunes, I welcome you and um, I implore you to participate in the discussion on the Twitter page, uh, because that's where people suggest topics for the podcast. And I usually try to cover everything that people mention within reason. Sometimes I leave stuff out if it's not relevant or if I've already covered it. So, yeah. Um, I'm on retreat this week, thanks to my friend uh, Jason Gardner, who's been a very generous supporter of Daily Zen and um, just a, a general spiritual supporter of the things that I do and a mentor as well. So it's been fun to be here and, uh, I've been in near the Santa Cruz area at a retreat, um, at the Mount Madonna center with, um, the teacher, John Tarrant, um, who, uh, has given me some, a Cohen to work with and been sitting for six or seven hours a day and uh, it's something I've never done before, so it's a definitely an interesting experience so far, and uh, it's fascinating the difference between a daily practice of 20 to 40 minutes, which is what I usually do, and a weekly, this this um, this full week of really intense all-day practice, uh, a lot of interesting and challenging things kind of appear in your head when you sit for that long. And so I suggest it to anybody really, uh, you know, maybe once a year or something going to one of these retreats because you cultivate, um, I don't know, it's, it's just sort of a heightened um, focus that doesn't come from a daily, a daily practice. I mean, it comes from daily practice slowly over time, but um, doing a month's worth of meditation in... Um, a week or even, you know, six months worth of meditation in a week is a very fascinating and engaging experience. So anyway, um, let's find these topics. Um, the first topic that someone suggested was self-compassion, which uh, is something I haven't touched on yet. And so Nice work suggesting <laughs> there are a lot of other topics that I've already talked about, so thanks for suggesting that. Um, when people preach and talk about compassion, they often talk about it in terms of, you know, one's relationship to the outside world and sort of the uh, desire people have to be virtuous and to feel virtuous. Um, and also in Buddhism, compassion is a crucial practice just as far as um, living a, a mindful and, you know, quote-unquote enlightened life goes um, because the essence of compassion is seeing yourself, seeing yourself not necessarily in another person or another thing, but as another person and as another thing and realizing that you both have the same essence and the same connection to the world at large 
and embracing that and accepting that and accepting that um, those who those who suffer whether they are on your side, not on your side, whether they're the same species as you, the same race, the same religion, you know, it doesn't really matter because everyone is suffering and everyone's a living being and all living beings suffer. And so the crucial challenge of living is not getting so caught up in your own belief that your experience is so unique and so different from others. Um, and so having compassion just means recognizing that we're all sharing this sort of participation in this organism of the, you know, the universe or the world or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and there's no point in creating artificial distance between beings or people because we're all kind of cut from the same stuff, you know? And so self-compassion is sort of this interesting inversion of that, not, not of that principle, but this inversion of the idea that the other is the self, um, sort of, it's recognizing that at your essence, you don't have a self, you know, you are sort of this expression of the universe and you develop an ego and you develop a conception of self based on, you know, the way in which you move through the world, your body, um, your opinions, your cultural influences, the way you were raised, your traumas, your, you know, drives and goals, your cravings, all these things. And you cultivate an identity around them that um, is believed to be unique and that's encouraged to be individualistic in our society. And that's a good thing because it encourages people to have personal freedoms and to follow the path that they believe is most true to them. But it also atomizes people and makes people feel apart from one another and alienated from one another. And when you're navigating the world through the lens of I am this, I am that, you might be deep down if you're not reflecting, if you're not having a daily reflective practice or trying to reach deep into yourself, if you're grabbing at things in the outside world to define yourself, who you really are and who you believe you are are two different things. And they sort of move further away from each other over time because the more you, you know, spend your time grasping at external conceptions of yourself to define yourself, the less time you have to look within and, you know, push away all of those external conceptions and uncover who you actually are. And the dissonance between your perceived self and your actual self causes a lot. I believe it's responsible for, you know, the vast majority of neuroses, uh, addictions, you know, all these different things. And a lot of people don't want to believe that because they like to, everyone likes to always find some sort of external variable that can be blamed for a problem, um, especially if the problem is severe. But I really think that that's the, the crux of what causes us so much pain in the world is when we're, we're living sort of play acting as someone who we aren't. And all the while the, you know, 
the the ultimate reality of who you are and what your um, life is about is inside of you, kind of stand, sitting there waiting for you to to just look look at it and give it attention. And yet we neglect that essence in favor of you know shiny objects and um, fantasies about what life is outside of ourself. And so self-compassion is the, the turning of the gaze from the external world to the internal world. And I think in that respect, we can look at meditation as being the most distilled form of self-compassion and the most effective way to practice it directly on a daily basis. Because you're taking the, you're taking the critical eye and the, the, um, I always like to say lens because it's sort of like you're absorbing the world through this um, filtering system. And what you're looking for in the outside world isn't there. You know, the things that you find only sort of push you to figure out internally what your true thoughts are and what the essence of everything is. And so if you take the focus that you direct towards everything out there and you sit and you close your eyes and you direct it inside towards the inside, you know, towards your heart, towards your mind, whatever. And you sit in silence and kind of just let everything wash over you. You cultivate that sort of um, self-compassion because you can recognize what you are. You kind of, you see, you see your true self when you reflect. And you, you know, you get to know each other and you make friends eventually. And over time, you know, very slowly that builds into this foundation of inner strength, inner confidence, um, you know, self-discipline, self-love. And they're all the same. They are, they're all the same thing. You know, they all just stem from uh, this choice that we have in every moment, which is do we cling to some sort of delusional external definition of what we should be or what we want to be or do we turn our attention inward and see what we really are and make peace with what we really are and it's very easy to get caught up in uh, the the external world and what we're expected to do and what we expect ourselves to do um, what we're expected to have how we're expected to be when all of those things are, you know, for the most part, just distractions from confronting the self. And there's no coincidence that a lot of people who distract themselves constantly with external things, whether it's their career or sex or drugs or just distractions, politics, religion, whatever it is, um, you it's often very jarring for them to have an experience of internal reflection because the more, the more external stuff we start to, we try to pile on to that little, you know, it's like throwing a bunch of blankets on top of a heat bulb. You know, you just kind of keep piling them on and piling them on. And, um, it, the, you know, all of this light and heat just gets buried under all of these heavy, thick layers of, um, crap that we acquire ideologically and materially 
So, yeah, self-compassion is being patient with yourself during that process, especially. It's letting yourself experience yourself and not have any expectations the same way that if you want to be compassionate and listen to another person, you can't have any expectations. You can't try to get a word in. You can't be too adamant on expressing your own point of view because that's not the point. The point is to be there fully for someone else without an expectation or a condition. Uh, the same way that the point of self-compassion is to be there fully for yourself without any expectation or condition. Because you and another, you know, you're not, there's no difference, you know, between your experience of yourself and your experience of another person uh, if you're defining everything based on all of these outside conditions. Um, and you really start to recognize that there's no barrier between you and another person when you figure out ways to cultivate that self-compassion. Um, and meditation is just the, the most effective way, I think, to do that. So, um, so <laughs> someone said soil salinity, which I think is funny. I don't know. Made me laugh. I'm not a, I'm not a farmer and I'm not an expert, um, in earth sciences, but I hope that you find your answer elsewhere. Uh, the next one I want to answer is um, someone suggested the topic of beginner's mind. Um, I'm currently writing a book about beginner's mind that I'm not allowed to talk too much about, but um, I'm excited to share it with you when it does finally come to fruition. It's been a long time of trying to get an arrangement with a publisher, but it, it happened and it's happening and I'll have more news in the coming months. Um, but I've been thinking a lot about just meditating on the concept of beginner's mind as a sort of koan. Um, and in, I don't know if you're familiar with what a Zen koan is. Some people are, I'm sure, and some people aren't. But it's just sort of a, um, a little limerick or phrase intended to flex your mind and your meditation practice. You're not really intended to answer it. You're sort of just uh, meant to, to sit on it and think on it and, or not think on it and not grasp at it and just sort of let it float around and posit different suggestions of interpretations. So um, the idea of beginner's mind started with Shunru Suzuki, who wrote the book Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, um, which starts with this concept that in the beginner's mind there are many possibilities, and in the expert's mind there are few. And... Um, in our society, we're trained to believe that things are the other way around. We're trained to believe that possibilities and opportunities come from specialization. They come from skill. They come from progression and age and practice. Um, but as we specialize or cultivate any sort of skill or action we sort of fall into a habit of repeating things over and over again, of recognizing similarities between things and of overanalyzing what we're doing. And so the whole idea of beginner's mind is that um, when you're like a child, when you're sort of experiencing things um, new, 
they have a specialness and a freshness and a uniqueness to you in that moment that they don't necessarily have when you cultivate all of these ideas and expectations and beliefs around experiences. And so I think of beginner's mind less as something pertinent to one specific skill or, or a specific specialization, though a lot of people who practice Zen, you know, if they're athletes or they're business people or whatever, uh, they find that this concept of beginner's mind helps them return to a place of freshness in what they're doing. Um, you know, you see a lot of the, a lot of the, the world's greatest musicians and artists produce some of their best work when they're relatively amateur. And then um, later on, sometimes they get jaded and they don't produce, you know, a band's later albums are often not as good as their first few albums. Uh, a painter's later work can sometimes be convoluted and based on the market or based on their, their fame or whatever. Uh, mathematicians are, I think, I think there's it's something like most mathematicians do their best work before they're 22, something like that. Um, you know, none of this is to say that we're not capable of doing good work in our old age. It's just that most people who don't participate in this sort of spiritual reflection are susceptible to falling into experts' mind. As soon as they are recognized um, or as soon as they cultivate a life around um, their external achievements and accomplishments, even though this concept of beginner's mind is much bigger than that. I mean, you, you're cultivating not just a, a freshness uh, in, a specific, in a specific hobby or skill or business or whatever it is that you're doing. It's more so that you're, you're cleaning, I like to think of it as cleaning the slate of your mind. Um, in Zen, there's a, there's a saying, I think I mentioned this on a, a few episodes ago, that when you meditate, uh, you can think of it like you're brooming the dust off the floor of a, of a big room uh, once a day. And if you go a couple days without it, you might not notice. But if you go a whole lifetime without it, um, you'll have a room that's just full of muck and grime and dirt. And you won't even know that it's full of muck and grime and dirt because you've never seen the floor clean before. And so beginner's mind is this, is this perpetual cleansing of what we believe about ourselves and what we do and about all of the labels and preferences and discriminations we have about life. And um, it arises as a result of turning down the volume on the preferential mind, on the conceptual mind, which is what meditation does. It lets you perceive and experience the present moment without the without the middleman of symbolic understanding or symbolic exchange or language um, or desire it lets you see it lets you experience you know this moment right now as it is um, in in brief these brief glimpses of mindfulness and awareness um, it lets you really engage with the right, the now, the right now, here, where you are. And that's the essence of where beginner's mind comes from. Because 
whether you're approaching tennis or Zen or personal finance or sex or whatever, whatever it is that you're focusing on right now, if you approach it from a place of um, too strict of an understanding of, of what you want out of it, what you've accomplished with it, what it is, what it's not, you forego certain um, spontaneous surprises or new understandings that you might not be aware of. We're very arrogant as human beings with what we believe and what we think is the best and what we think is right. And we often base our ideas of what we think is best on past experiences, which we wouldn't have had if we hadn't had the spontaneity of beginner's mind. Um, you know, if I had, I for 15 years have taught myself to play the drums and now I'm good at the drums uh, in a way that, you know, playing in a weird way that, that if I were to sit down with a teacher, they'd say, why are you doing that? Don't do that. That's a bad habit to get into. But I wouldn't care because there's no there's no um, reason to not cultivate your approach to things in your own way. Um, the only reason comes from the desire to fit into some sort of expectation. Um, the irony being that, you know, I can now probably play drums better than someone who learned the traditional way. Um, because when you, when you let yourself experience something directly with that beginner's mind, you let yourself make all of the mistakes you can make because you're not holding yourself up to some sort of false standard of what you should be doing. And so you can just learn and learn and learn and you keep learning and you keep having the beginner's mind and you never, um, you're never narrowing your, your viewpoint at all. You're just sort of remaining open to all of these experiences and your skill is growing because your familiarity with what you're doing is increasing. But your mind, your body will do that. You know what I mean? Like your, your being will, um, will increase in proficiency whether your mind is judging it or not. And so if you can let your mind remain open um, like a beginner instead of closed like an expert, you'll find new, you know, creatively you'll find new avenues to, to do things. Um, professionally, you'll figure out at least in my experience, a sort of flexibility that allows the interconnection of work and life seamlessly. And there's just a lot of different opportunities that we close ourselves off to because we're so certain we know how things work. And that's what beginner's mind is to me. And that's what this, this book that I'm writing is going to be about. It's sort of how do you see... How do you... How do you um, what do you put into your mind to jog it into seeing things a little bit differently without preconceived notions, without this belief that you're skilled or that you're an expert? You know, how do you convince your mind that, it, that it's okay to see things in a different way? Um, because it's uncomfortable at first, but then it's really, really, really um, um, you know, exuberant and exciting. And it just, you know, the, the essence of, the essence of life is the beginner's mind. It's not the expert's mind. You know, the essence of life is to be wide open and to be pliable and flexible, not to be closed off and rigid and breakable, you know. Um, 
glass breaks because it's so rigid and tense, you know. But, you know, a piece of rubber you can just throw and it's, and it's fine. I like to think of cultivating the mind as of moving it towards more of a um, flexible and not, not necessarily soft, but sort of a flexible strength, you know, like a, um, like a really strong tree that can blow in the wind and move, but, you know, if you try to push it down, it won't fall down, that sort of thing. Okay, so I have time for one more little one. <laughs> Someone says, what's the name of the podcast? It's the Daily Zen Podcast. <laughs> That's the quick, that, that'll be the quick one. Okay, someone says, um, this is good, ascension and how to tell if you're ascending. Uh, uh, I think that the, I mean, I don't really know what's meant by this, but this idea of ascension is like maybe one of these um, hokey new age spiritual ideas that came about through some sort of misinterpretation of an ancient religious text, maybe like a Hindu text or something. But um, there's in Zen, there's kind of this underlying understanding that, well, underlying understanding as you start to quote unquote get it, that you're not moving, you're not moving upwards, you're not moving across, you're not moving at all. You know, the um, the practice comes from not moving. And so the belief that you're moving or that you're moving in order to get somewhere higher or to get somewhere further or to initiate progress or to initiate change or to grow or to become stronger um, is all perfectly natural for the thinking mind but is misguided in far, insofar as uh, you're practicing one of these ancient practices because when you're not meditating the desire to progress to ascend to grow to change whatever it is is also misguided and uh, the desire for more and more and more and for things that we don't have and for the next step to always be planning ahead is a um, reflection of of kind of an anxious inability to be in the moment and to live, you know, fully in the moment. And it sort of comes from us being too comfortable and too able to plan ahead. You know, modern society is so comfortable that um, we, we, we take for granted that we're alive and that we're cozy and, you know, that we have loved ones and that we have beautiful nature around us, um, whatever it is, we take it all for granted and we start to create all of these artificial conditions for happiness and for growth and for ascension, so to speak. You know, that's what we do in the material world. Um, and so this concept of material ascension and material climbing up the ladder is just as misguided as this idea of spiritual ascension, um, because if there if there is an ascension, it comes from not caring anymore about the ascendance. It comes from being perfectly okay 
being, you know, at the bottom of the ladder, sitting in the mud, doing nothing, um, just just being, you know, because that's the <laughs> the acceptance of the lowest is the reflection of the highest in that sense. Because if you're perfectly satisfied with nothing, you are, um, you've got it made, you know, more made than someone who needs conditions for their satisfaction. If you can just be at peace right now with whatever you have, whether it's nothing, whether it's a lot, whether it's a little, it doesn't matter. The, the essence of all of this stuff is that you can just be with yourself quietly in a room and feel perfectly content and perfectly peaceful. And that that's as perfectly content and peaceful as you'll, you'll ever feel. Um, because that's all there is. And that's all we're looking for when we look for things outside of the self and outside of the spirit. So. Okie doke. That's it for uh, today. Um, I have more free time in the mornings and the evenings at this retreat than I anticipated. So because I have a nice quiet room to myself and uh, there's not any of the New York City traffic outside and uh, the nature here is mesmerizingly beautiful. And I'm sitting in meditation for eight hours a day, so I have plenty of time to reflect on um, any topics you might suggest. Hopefully, I'll figure out a way to record um, maybe one of these episodes every day, and then I'll release them over the course of a few weeks. So if you hear this and you are interested in um, participating in the discussion, please suggest some topics on twitter.com slash daily zen uh if you like what a if you like what you hear and you want to you know read some of my ideas um and meditate on them i have a book on amazon it's called daily zen by charlie ambler there's a link to it on the twitter page um and uh yeah that's it thanks for listening and um i'll be back soon <laughs>